Section 3 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 6. Edited by Siba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 3. Independence by Mrs. S. C. Hall. Independence. It is the word of all others that Irish men, women, and children least understand, and the calmness, or rather indifference, with which they submit to dependence, bitter and miserable as it is, must be a source of deep regret to all who love the land, or who feel anxious to uphold the dignity of humankind. Let us select a few cases, in different grades, from a single village, such as are abundant in every neighborhood. Shane Thurlow, for example, as decent a boy, and Shane's wife, as clean-skinned a girl, as any in the world. There is Shane, an active, handsome-looking fellow, leaning over the half-door of the cottage, kicking a hole in the wall with his brogue, and picking up all the large gravel within his reach, wherewith to pelt those useful Irish scavengers, the ducks. Let us speak to him. Good morrow, Shane. Och, the bright beams of heaven on you every day, and kindly welcome, my lady, and won't you step in rest? It's powerful hot, and a beautiful summer ashore. The Lord be praised. Thank you, Shane. I thought you were going to cut the hayfield today. If a heavy shower come, it will be spoiled. It has been fit for the scythe these two days. Sure, it's all owing to that thief of the world, Tom Parrow, my lady. Didn't he promise me the loan of his scythe? And by the same token, I was to pay him for it. And depending on that, I didn't buy one. What I've been threatened to do for the last two years. But why don't you go and purchase one? To Carrick? Och, tis a good step to Carrick. And my toes are on the ground, save in your presence, for I depended on Dim Jarvis to tell Andy Cabler, the brogue maker, to do my shoes. And bad luck to him, the spalpeen. He forgot it. Where's your pretty wife, Shane? She's in all the old woe of the world, ma'am, dear, and she puts the blame of it on me, though I'm not in fault this time anyhow. The child's taken the smallpox, and she depended on me to tell the doctor to cut it for the cowpox. And I depended on Kitty Cackle, the limmer, to tell the doctor's own man, and thought she would not forget it because the boy's her bachelor. But out of sight, out of mind. The never a word she told him about it, and the baby has got it natural, and the woman's in art trouble, to say nothing of myself, and it the first and all. I am very sorry indeed. For you have got a much better wife than most men. That's true word, my lady. Only she's fidgety-like sometimes, and says I don't hit the nail on the head quick enough. And she takes a dale more trouble than she need to about many a thing. I do not think I ever saw Ellen's wheel without flax before, Shane. Bad cess to the wheel. I got it this morning about that, too. I depended on John Williams to bring the flax from old Flaherty's this day week, and he forgot it. And she says I ought to have brought it myself, and I close to the spot. But where's the good, says I, 
Sure, he'll bring you next time. I suppose, Shane, you will soon move into the new cottage at Clern Hill. I passed it today, and it looks so cheerful. And when you get there, you must take Ellen's advice and depend solely on yourself. Och, ma'am, dear, don't mention it. It's that makes me so down in the mouth this very minute. Sure, I saw that born blackguard Jack Waddy, and he comes in here quite innocent-like. Shane, you've an eye to Squire's new lodge, says he. Maybe I have, says I. I'm your man, says he. How so, says I? Sure, I'm as good as married to my lady's maid, says he. And I'll speak to the squire for you, my own self. The blessing be about you, says I, quite grateful. And we took a strong sup on the strength of it. And depended on him, I thought all safe. And what do you think, my lady? Why, himself stalks into the place, talked to squire over to be sure. And without so much as by your leave, sates himself and his new wife on the lease in the house. And I may go whistle. It was a great pity, Shane, that you didn't go yourself to Mr. Clern. That's a true word for you, ma'am, dear. But it's hard if a poor man can't have a friend to depend on. James Doyle, general dealer, and a neat, good-looking shop it was, double-fronted, its multifarious contents doubtless very amusing. Mr. Doyle was a sleek, civil little man, as any in the country, and much respected. He would have been rich also, were it not that he was unfortunately a widower with five daughters. If you had seen his well-stored counters and shelves and the extraordinary crowd that assembled in his shop, you would have felt certain that everything was to be had within. Pins, ribbons, knives, scissors, tobacco pipes, candles, mouse traps, tea, soap, sugars, tape, thread, cotton, flax, wool, paper, pens, ink, snuff and snuff boxes, beads, salt herrings, cheese, butter, muslins, such beauties, calicoes like cambric, linens, better than lawn, twine, ropes, slates, halters, stuffs, eggs, bridles, stockings, turf, delisk, pepper, mustard, vinegar, knitting needles, books, namely, the reading made easy, life of Frenny and his many wonderful escapes, showing how, after his being most famous robber, he lived and died a good Catholic Christian in the beautiful and celebrated town of Ross, in the ancient county of Wexford. Valentine and Orson, Seven Champions of Christendom, and such like. Which books, by the way, turn the heads of half our little girls and boys. The village shop would have vended its finery to greater advantage if there had been no direct communication with Wexford, for it must be confessed that some of the pretty lasses took it into their heads to be dissatisfied with the goods at the big shop, and absolutely sent for their Sunday elegances to the county town. But nevertheless, James Doyle would have made a fortune, if his five daughters had been willing to assist him in his business. Had you seen them, they would not have appeared like the industrious children of an English tradesman, who invariably think it their duty to make every effort for the well-doing of their family, and exert themselves, either at home or abroad, to procure independence. Could the slatternly appearance of the five Mrs. Doyle, or their tawdry finery, 
designate any beings in the world except the daughters of an ill-regulated Irish shopkeeper. I say ill-regulated because truly all are not so, very far from it. Their mother died when they were young, and their father unadvisedly sent them to one of those hotbeds of pride and mischief, a fifteen-pound boarding school in a garrison town, where they learnt to work tent-stitch and despise trade. When they returned, Honest Doyle saw he could not expect anything from them in the way of usefulness, and not possessing much of that uncommon quality, miscalled common sense. He was contented to support them in idleness, hoping that their pretty faces might catch the unwary. And sure, said Miss Sally, the firstborn, to Miss Stacy, the second hope of the family, haven't we had six months apiece at Miss Brick's own school? Can't our father afford us a clear hundred each, down in yellow guineas? Hasn't he got a thousand, maybe more, at the very last penny, in Westford's bank? And if he, with such a power of money, demands himself by keeping a poultry shop instead of living like a gentleman upon his property, and cutting a dash to get us decent husbands, not bog-trotters, there's no reason in life why we should attend to it. I hope we have a better spirit, all of us, than to do the likes of that, indeed. And so the five Misses Doyle chose the handsomest prints in the shop for their own especial use loitered the mornings en populeux, lounging up the street or down the street, or staring out of the window, their shoes slipshod, and the turn-out strings replaced by pins that invariably made one rent while they secured another, and in the evenings excited the stare of the silly and the contempt of the wise by their overdressed but ill-arranged persons, parading in trumpery finery and French curls. Then they were perpetually quarrelling, although their tastes on matrimonial points were very similar, and if a young farmer, or more delightful still, a boy from Wexford or Waterford, put up at the village, mercy bless us what a full cry, such a set, five to one. Take a specimen of the quarrels of the five rivals in love. Little good, Babby, there is, and you're trying to make anything decent of that head of yours, as long as it's so bright and carroty. It's no such thing as carroty, Stacy, and for the matter of that, look at your own nose. Sure no one in life would think it worth their while to be after a pug dog. It's good fun to hear the pair of you arguing about beauty. Beauty indeed, interrupted Miss Sally tossing her head, and eyeing her really very pretty person in the cracked looking-glass. "'Oh, to be sure, you think yourself wonderful handsome!' exclaimed two of the girls at once. "'I never could see any beauty in curds and whey,' continued she of the elevated nose. "'You little go by the ground, keep out of my way,' said the tallest sister, Joanna, to the shortest, Cicely. "'You keep as much bother about your dress as if you were a passable size.' Hold your tongue, you long gawky, retorted the little one. There's no use in your dressing at the stranger boy. He's not a grenadier. Poor Doyle. Miss Sally ran off with a walking gentleman who refused to marry her unless her portion was made three hundred pounds. Oh, said the father, the pride of my heart she was. But it is bad to depend on beauty. True, Doyle. Or upon anything. 
except well-regulated industry. If he would come into partnership, he might be useful. But the gentleman disdained to trade. The poor father mortgaged part of his property, paid the money, and Sally was married. But in less than a year was returned on his hands with the addition of a helpless infant, the scorn of her unfeeling sisters. Stacy was the next to heap sorrow on the old man's head. She, to use her own expression, met with misfortune, for she depended on the boy's honor. But her sin was too degrading to allow of her continuing in the house. Cicely married, honestly married, a daring, dashing smuggler who, depending on his former good fortune, dared an exploit in the contraband trade, which would have banished him forever from the country, had not Doyle again mortgaged his property to save him. The young man's good name was gone, however, and he lived depending on his father-in-law who now began to suffer seriously from pecuniary embarrassment. Joanna married what was called well, that is, the young man was a gentleman farmer, too proud to look after his own affairs. He depended upon his right-hand man, or the goodness of the times, or anything but his own exertions, for his success. Speculated, failed, prevailed on his unfortunate relative to bail him, and in open defiance of truth and honesty, fled to America. Then, indeed, the wail and the woe resounded in that house, where peace and comfort and happiness might have dwelt, and the old man's bed was the cold jail floor, and the family were scattered and branded with sin and shame, and all for want of independent feelings. The Honorable Mr. Augustus Hedderton, who once lived in a yonder villa, was the youngest of eleven children, and consequently the junior brother of the noble Lord of Hedderton, nephew of the Honorable Justice Cleveland, nephew of Admiral Barrymore, K.C.B., etc., 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 and cousin, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh, remove to half the honorables and dishonorables in the country. When the old earl died, he left four chancery suits and a nominal estate to the heir apparent, to whom he also bequeathed his three younger brothers and sisters, who had only small annuities from their mother's fortune, being assured that, to use his own words, he might depend on him for the honor of the family to provide for them handsomely. And so he did in his own estimation. His lady sisters had the run of the house— and Mr. Augustus Hedderton had the run of the stables, the use of hunters and dogs, and was universally acknowledged to possess a proper spirit, because he spent three times more than his income. "'He baits the world and all for beauty in a hunting jacket,' exclaimed the groom. "'He flies a gate beyond any living soul I ever see, and his tally-ho! My jewel, twould do your good to hear his tally-ho!' said my lord's huntsman. "'He's a generous gentleman as any in the kingdom. I'll say that for him. Any day in the year,' echoes the coachman. "'He's admired more nor any gentleman that walks Stevens Green in a month of Sundays. I'll go bail,' continued Miss Jenny Rowe, the lady's maid. "'Choose a profession? Oh, no, impossible. But the Honourable Mr. Augustus Hedderton chose a wife.' and through all his relations, 
including Lord Hederton, the Honorable Justice Cleveland, Admiral Barrymore, KCB, and his cousins to the 50th remove, into strong convulsions, or little fits. She, the lady, had 60,000 pounds. That, of course, they could not object to. She had eloped with the Honorable Mr. Augustus Hederton, mere youthful indiscretion. She was little and ugly. That only concerned her husband. She was proud and extravagant. These were ladylike failings. She was ignorant and stupid. Her sisters-in-law would have pardoned that. She was vulgar. That was awkward. Her father was a carcass butcher in Colesland Market. Death and destruction. It could never be forgiven. The cut direct was unanimously agreed upon. And the little lady turned up her little nose in disdain as her handsome barouche rolled past the lumbering carriage of the right honourable Lord Hederton. She persuaded her husband to purchase that beautiful villa, in view of the family domain, that she might have more frequent opportunities of bringing, as she elegantly expressed it, the proud beggars to their trumps. And why not? Money's money, all the world over. The Honourable Mr. Augustus depended on his agent for the purchase, and some two thousand and odd pounds were consequently paid, or said to have been paid for it, more than its value. And then commenced the general warfare, full purse and empty head, versus no purse and old nobility. They had the satisfaction of ruining each other, in due course of time, the full purse was emptied by devouring dunce, and the old nobility suffered by its connection with vulgarity. I want to know, Honorable Mr. Augustus Hederton, the lady always gave the full name when addressing her husband. She used to say it was all she got for her money. I want to know, Honorable Mr. Augustus Hederton, the reason why the music master's lesson given to the Mrs. Hederton they were blessed with seven sweet pledges of affection, have not been paid for. I desired the steward to see to it, and you know I depend on him to settle these matters. The Honourable Mrs. Augustus Hederton rang the bell. Send Martin up. Mr. Martin, the lady began, what is the reason that Mr. Lang's account has not been paid? My master, ma'am, knows that I have been anxious for him to look over the accounts. The goings out are so very great, and the comings in, as far as I know. The Honourable Mr. Augustus Hederton spilt some of the whisky punch he was drinking over a splendid hearth rug, which drew the lady's attention from what would have been an unpleasant éclaircissement. I cannot understand why difficulties should arise. I am certain I brought a fortune large enough for all extravagance, was the lady's constant remark when expenditure was mentioned. Years pass over the heads of the young, and they grow old, and over the heads of fools, but they never grow wise. The Honourable Mr. and Mistress Augustus Hederton were examples of this truth. Their children grew up around them, but could derive no support from the parent root. The mother depended on governesses and masters for the education of her girls, and on their beauty, connections, or accomplishments to procure them husbands. The father did not deem the labors of study fit occupation for the sons of an ancient house. Depend upon it, he would say. 
They'll all do well with my connections. They will be able to command what they please. The Honourable Mr. Augustus could not now boast of a full purse, for they had long been living on the memory of their once ample fortune. The Honourable Mr. Augustus Hederton died, in the forty-fifth year of his age, of inflammation caught in an old lime kiln, where he was concealed to avoid an arrest for the sum of one hundred and eighty guineas for Black Nell, the famous filly who won the cup of the Corrach of Kildare, purchased in his name, but without his knowledge, by his second son, the pride of the family, commonly called Dashing Dick. All I know further of the Honourable Mistress Augustus Hederton is that she played at cards and died. Miss Georgiana, the beauty and the greatest fool of the family, who depended on her face as a fortune, did get a husband, an old rich West India planter, and eloped six months after marriage with an officer of dragoons. Miss Celestina was really clever and accomplished. Use her ability for her own support. Oh, no, not for worlds. Too proud to work, but not too proud to beg. She depended on her relations, and played toady to all who would have her. Miss Louisa, not clever, but in all other respects, ditto, ditto. Miss Charlotte was always very romantic, but refused a respectable banker with indignation, and married her uncle's footman, for love. Having sketched the female parts of the family, I will tell you what I remember of the gentleman. The emperor, as Mr. Augustus was called, from his stately manner and dignified deportment, aided by as much self-esteem as could well be contained in a human body, depended, without any compunctuous visitings of conscience, on the venison, claret, and champagne of his friends, and thought all the time he did them honour, and thus he passed his life. Dashing Dick was the opposite of the emperor, sung a good song, told a good story, and gloried in making the ladies blush. He depended on his cousin Colonel Bloomfield's procuring him a commission in his regiment, and cheated tailors, hosiers, glovers, and coachmakers, and even lawyers with impunity. Happily for the world at large, Dashing Dick broke his neck in a steeplechase on a stolen horse, which he might have been hanged for purloining had he lived a day longer. Ferdinand was the bon bouche of the family. They used to call him the parson. Excellent, Ferdinand. He depended on his own exertions, and if ever the name of Hederton rises on the scale of moral or intellectual superiority, it will be owing to the steady and virtuous efforts of Mr. Ferdinand Hederton, merchant in the good city of B, for he possesses in perfection the glorious privilege of being independent. End of section three. Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks.